Amen. I am yours and you are mine. There is no better truth that we could talk about today than the fact that we are his and he is ours. Amen. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Do we agree? Good morning. Good morning. Everyone awake? A little chilly. We, let's wake up a little bit. It's, time, it's, it's time, to, time to worship a little bit. Let's have some joy in the Lord. Um, Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. New series alert. New series alert. Esther, the book of Esther. Um, we are going to be doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Esther. I don't know how long it will take us. Only a 10 chapters, and the 10th chapter is literally three verses. Um, we're hoping to get through the end of the year at least, maybe a little bit into next year. Um, Coleman's got one more sermon on the to wrap up his War in the Mind series, which has been so good and helpful. Um, and then he'll jump into Esther with us, with me, and uh, we'll get through it. The book of Esther, I'm excited about Old, Test- Old Testament narrative, um, but a lot of truth to learn. Let's go ahead and read, and then I'll kind of um, set up the service today. Um, now, verse number one, now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. Everyone say Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, I've been practicing all week. I hope you can tell, and I hope you're proud of me. Ahasuerus. Now, if you're like, that's not, Rick, if, that, if I'm not saying it correctly, please do not correct me. I need this today. Okay. Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 170, 20, oh, over 170, 20 provinces. Um, that is in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace. In the third year of he reigned, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and, Me- and, and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. Verse number nine, we'll skip two. And Vashti, a little bit easier, didn't have the practice as hard on that one. The queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, we're going to skip those, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king. I don't have enough time in the week to nail those seven names so we're going to move on to verse number 11. To bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandments by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. So the next unto him was those seven, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which sat, in for the, sat the first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And Mem- Memucan, I have to say that one, answer before the king and the princes, Vashti, the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to the princes and to all the people that are in the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes. When it shall be reported, the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti, the queen, to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise, shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen, Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better 
than she. And the king's decree, which he shall make published throughout all the empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king, and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mimucan, for he sent letters to all the king's provinces, and to every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after the language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. We're going to read one verse in chapter 2. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti, and what she had done, and what he had decreed, and what was decreed against her. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into our study of the book of Esther. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for letting us come together on a 9 a.m. beautiful day um, in Statesville, North Carolina, for one purpose and one purpose only, that is to honor and glorify you. And we've done that through worship, Lord, the past few minutes, Lord. And now as we begin a book study that is, uh, it's an interesting book, Lord. We're going to talk all about it, Lord. It's, it's going to take several weeks to kind of swallow all, the, all that Esther has for us. But we know that you have some for us today as well. And uh, help us to honor and glorify you by hearing your word and then taking what we hear and then letting it transform our lives. Lord, the reason we preach, the reason we study the word of God is not just for head knowledge, but for life knowledge, heart knowledge, that we can go out and be more like you today. And uh, let that be our goal of this service, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, we've been talking. I know the last time I preached, I mentioned that I wanted to get back into books. I think book studies is like a big part of Euphoria's identity, and uh, I'm excited to get back into a book study. Um, I was battling what to go. We're already in an Old Testament narrative on Sunday nights in Judges, which is, we started off last week. I would say it was really good, but I did preach that, so I'm not going to say it was really good. It was, it was, we started. I'll just say we started. Uh, we started Judges last week, and now we're starting another Old Testament narrative um, this morning, but I just couldn't get away from it. And the reason I couldn't get away from it is because of what's kind of happened this week um, over in the Middle East. And uh, I hope you guys have been paying attention to that. We haven't mentioned it much from the pulpit. I know last, it kind of just happened last Sunday. We didn't mention it. On Wednesday night, I, I kind of sat with the teens for a few minutes, just kind of explained um, what went on over there and kind of our, as Christians, what our response to that is. And I hope... Um, I hope that you're paying attention to those things, not for the sake of end-time prophecy, although there is some of that, not for the sake of your own um, comfort or, or whatever you would do, but rather for the sake of burden for those people who are having to endure that. If you, if you haven't paid attention, I know my, na- my, natural, um, my natural choice is usually to avert my eyes to things. I usually would rather avoid it. Uh, I'd rather turn off the news, turn off the social media, and just kind of like close my eyes to it, but there's... Sometimes we need to look evil in the face and see what godless culture brings. Um, a culture with void of God brings terror. And not just terror in the sense of terrorism, but that's just godless culture in general. So I hope you haven't averted your eyes to it. I hope you're teaching your kids about what happened over there. I, I, I hope you're aware of this. This generation, this, this generation of teenagers, young adults, does not view um, tragedy the way you view tragedy. It's very different for them because... They've grown up with tragedy at every turn. And I'm not saying they've had it worse than you, but they've had more access to tragedy than you have. Um, every day on social media, you can find tragedy, and they find it every single day. So when, um, when I talk about, you know, when we talk about school shootings in youth group, we talk about these terrorist attacks, it doesn't phase us like it may have phased you when you were that age because we see it so often. And don't get mad at your kids for that. Don't get mad at the generation for that. That's just the culture they've grown up in. But it still needs to be mentioned. It still needs to be taught. It still needs to be showed uh, so we can learn from it. Um, and, and what happened over there last Saturday, last Friday and last Saturday, um, was nothing short of horrific, nothing short of evil, nothing short of 
pure terrorism. And I hope you are praying for those people that are, that are enduring. That's a 9-11-esque um, attack. If you look at how many Jews were killed last week, it's, the, it's equivalent to 40,000 Americans being killed in the sense of the Jewish population. Only about 9 million Jews. Over 1,000 have been killed. Many more, thousands more injured, kidnapped, um, taken back into Palestinian-held areas and being ransomed off, murdered videos. It's, it's terrible, terrible stuff. And do not be afraid to look evil in the eye because we have victory over evil. Um, and you need to be confident in that. You need to be confident in that. But I've been, I'll be honest. So it happened Friday, Saturday. I kind of avoided it the weekend. And then Monday, Tuesday rolled around. I felt convicted that I'd avoided it because um, I, I, I don't want to be someone who, who avoids evil because I have solution to evil. We have the gospel. We've experienced the gospel. We know that God has all things in control. Romans 8, we know that God works all things together for good for those that love him. And, and I'm confident in that. So I started kind of getting into um, reading the news, started listening to some podcasts about what really took in place there and what was still going on, how we could pray, how we could help, how we could support. I wanted to address it with the teenagers. I wanted to have knowledge so that I could tell them, you know, truth, factual things, not just my opinion, not just how I felt, um, but really what had happened over there. And in that kind of deep dive that I went into early this week, I kept hearing mention of these attacks on Jews throughout history. And obviously Esther is just that. This is one of the earliest um, extermination of Jew movements that happened. The book of Esther is a, um, the goal of the villain in this story, Haman, is to exterminate the Jewish population. Um, obviously you have the Nazis and Hitler in the 40s who had a similar goal. And then obviously now the, the modern day um, Palestinian Empire, Hamas, terrorist, um, their goal is that as well. And this is kind of a running theme throughout history to exterminate God's people. And that's not a coincidence. I hope you see that's not a coincidence. That's not by accident. That's not just because this, that, or this. That is because they are God's chosen people and the enemy of God wants to destroy God's chosen people. Um, now, we are in that group as well. Now, we're not Jewish eth ethnically, but we are now God's chosen people because we're believers in him. So it all, it all affects us. I hope you see that. I hope you study that. I hope you're confident um, in, in that in that as you kind of go through that. But I kept coming back to Esther. I kept coming back to the book of Esther. I kind of just studied it. I kind of just started reading through it because I wanted to, to see. And um, I really kind of got into the book. I've enjoyed it. Um, it, it, unlike Judges, this book actually ends happily. This is a book that has twists and turns, and we're going to kind of talk about all that. Uh, but, I, but really today, I, I, we don't have a ton of time. I'm not going to really get into too much of the story, but I do want to kind of introduce it to you. Um, I want to introduce the story of Esther to you, and I want to kind of process the purpose of this book. Why did God give us this book? Because as you know, in the book of Esther, one, one of the famous things about the book of Esther is that God is not mentioned in the book. God's not mentioned in the book. And uh, if you read, honestly, one of the things that drew me to it, there's, there's no miracles in the book. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no building of Noah's Ark. There's no healing of the lame. There's no miracles. There's no signs and wonders. There's no um, incarnate Jesus walking around doing things. This is as much real life how God deals with us now is how God dealt with Esther in this story. He deals in the details silently. There are no coincidences with a sovereign God. I hope you're aware of that. There's no chance. There's no accident. A sovereign God holds all in his hands. And that's the God we serve. That's the God Esther served. So I want to kind of get into it a little bit, um, and then we will go through. The, the chapter 1 opens up um, with Ahasuerus. This is the king of Persia. So think Old Testament. This is after the Babylonian captivity. So after the book of Daniel, Daniel was taken captive. Um, then the king... It, 
in the middle of the book of Daniel, the king of Persia, Darius, comes in, frees, um, well, eventually frees the Jewish nation. They kind of, some return to Israel, some stay. So the group of Esther, of Esther and um, of Mordecai, the Jewish people in this story, are people who were once slaves, still kind of in captivity, still kind of in exile, but were allowed to go back home but chose to stay. They chose to stay. And King Darius, King Ahasuerus, is a very famous king in history. He was the leader of the Persian Empire. He fought the Greeks often. Um, and right now, this first ten verses kind of highlight in a six-month feast that King Ahasuerus is doing to garner support for his military conquest. So I want to kind of get you in the, eye, in the mindset of King Ahasuerus. He's garnering support for his military conquest. His father, ten years prior, had lost a battle to the Greeks, and he wanted to avenge his father. This is all in history. If you've ever seen the movie 300, you ever seen the movie 300? I've never seen it, so if it's bad, I'm sorry. If it's good, I don't know. If it's inappropriate, don't raise your hand. Don't do it. The movie 300 is based on this guy, okay? Movie 300 is based on this guy. Um, he's garnering support for a military conquest. He has this big feast. He, at the end of the feast, he has another seven-day little mini-feast to kind of finish it off. At the end of that feast, he's drunk. If you, throughout this story, this dude is an alcoholic. Um, he's drunk multiple times. He's also a very powerful king, um, kind of typical of the day. Uh, this is also a lost person. This is not someone who knows God. Um, obviously, king, uh, Queen Shatai, uh, Queen Vashti is as well. Um, he's drunk. He orders his wife to come to him. He says, I'm going to, uh, they have a, a feast for the men, a feast for the women. She's running the feast for the women. He's running the feast for the men. At the end, towards the end of the feast, he's drunk. He says, bring her out to me so I can kind of show her off. He says, put her on her crown. If you read like Jewish scholars, Jewish historians, they think that he ordered her to wear only her crown. So this was like a, to show off her beauty to the princess. Obviously, not something she would feel comfortable doing, not something uh, most people feel comfortable doing. Um, she is the queen. This is kind of a dishonoring thing. If you kind of read in the details here, this king is not a very uh, kingly guy. Like, he doesn't really know the laws, doesn't really know, um, he, he, that's why he has the seven guys around him. Kinda, he kind of asks them, what can we do? When she disobeys him, he's like, well, what can we do? What do the laws say? And they kind of have to tell him, well, there's not really any law. Um, not, the, not the brightest guy, bright warrior, bright, ki bright king in those terms, but when it comes to the social, the ruling part, really not his strong suit. So he tells her to come, she basically says no. She says, I'm not coming, um, in verse number um, 12. But the queen, Queen Vashti refused to come with the king's commandment by his shameless. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. So he's angry, 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 and uh, he decides to banish her. So he goes, he gets his men. He says, what can we do? He says, let's draw up a law. This is just classic man. He says, she disobeyed. What can we do? We got to get her back. We got to get her back. But he doesn't even know how to get her back, classic classic um, doesn't really know how to get her back so they write up a law that says listen here's the new law we're going to ban her from the queen so in the law she's no longer the queen and then here's the other law every woman in the empire this is the persian empire big empire has to obey their husbands that's the law the one thing he couldn't control he made a law so that no one else would have to deal with it literally he couldn't control his wife so he's like never again will any man not <laughs> Never again will any woman disobey their husband. So he literally makes a law throughout the entire Persian Empire to obey their husband. Literally. That's the law. He says, you cannot dishonor him. You cannot disobey. You have to obey your husband. So they write this law. He's like, that is sweet. I love that law. They pass the law. Queen Vashti is kind of exiled from her, her queenship. And the king's decree, verse number 20, when the king's decree which she shall make be public throughout the empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give their husbands honor, both great and small. So 
I don't care how poor you are, you're listening to your husband. I don't care how rich you are, you're listening to your husband. Amen? No, okay. Verse number 20. 21. And the saying pleased the king. He loved it. And the princess, they loved it too because they got wives as well. They're like, this is the greatest law we have ever passed. And the king did according to the word of Memucan. For he sent letters in all the king's provinces, every province. He sends out the letters. He lets them know um, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti. Now, that term, after these things, there is a three-year gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So he banishes his wife, he's wifeless, and then he goes to war. And that's where the movie 300 takes place. He goes to war against the Greeks. He takes an army of like 120,000 against an army much, much smaller. It wasn't 300. That is a little bit of a lie. They had other people with him. They're only 300 Spartans. Don't want to get into all that. But he goes against an army. He doesn't lose, but he suffers severe casualties. They lose about 1,000 men. He loses about 20,000 men. Bad odds. So he kind of comes back already depressed. He was going to avenge his father. Didn't really work out for him. He comes back depressed. He comes back sad. And uh, he, he comes to a place of remembering his wife. He allowed his impulses to control his life. And then all of a sudden, he has regret. And then that is where Esther's story kicks off. He needs a new queen. Three years have passed. He's lonely. He's kind of disappointed in his military conquest. So he says, I know we'll make this, make this better. I need a queen. And then the story of Esther really kicks off. The story of Esther really kicks off. And it, when I say that this is like the most Hollywood-type story that you could find, it really is. Literally, it kicks off with a one-year-long beauty pageant, which is just hilarious. Um, maybe you're a beauty pageant person. That, that, to me, that is hilarious. Honey Boo Boo is in this <laughs> chapter. I'm so, I don't know. So they have this beauty pageant. Um, and I'm going to kind of go through it a little bit. They have this beauty pageant. Obviously, Esther wins. She's beautiful. At this time, Esther's a teenager. They say maybe 14, 15. Um, she wins this beauty pageant of all these beautiful young ladies. And uh, she wins. He makes her her queen. And then there's just th plot twist after plot twist. Haman, uh, Mordecai overhears a plot to kill the king. Um, he, they they, they, they defeat that. Hey, uh, Mordecai gets promoted. Then all of a sudden, Haman wants to all of a sudden exterminate all the Jews. Mordecai and Esther have to kind of plan against him. They, the Mordecai, Haman builds the gallows for Mordecai. Obviously, Haman ends up dying on those gallows. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Queen Esther has to go to King Nebuchadnezzar. It's just, just this back and forth, back and forth story. Um, at the very end, there's this happy ending where they kind of go through and wipe out everyone who hates Jews, kind of preserving their... Um, kind of preserving their line for much, much longer. Just a really, really cool story. Uh, there's four things that kind of about this story I want to get through really quick. Another one, this is a hero story. This is a hero story. This is a story about Esther who is a heroine. I don't know, if, a heroic story. She's a heroine. Unlike, it's like an action movie. It's like a literal Marvel movie building Esther up. You have her origin story. Um, you have her mentor and Mordecai kind of teaching her. It's her uncle. She's an orphan. Um, you have a heinous villain in Haman who literally his goal in life is to eradicate an entire ethnic population. Um, and unlike judges, like I said, you actually have a happy ending. It's a heroic story. It's going to be a fun study. It's going to be a fun study. Not only a heroic story, it's a patriotic story. You know, all throughout my studies this week, you, the nation of Israel still mentions this story because it's essential to their preservation. Uh, they have a festival called Purim, P-U-R-I-M, which is a yearly celebration, usually in February every year, to celebrate these events, to celebrate the story of Esther, the heroics of Haman, um, and to remember them. 
a celebration of survival despite persecution and hardship, which prevented the annihilation of their entire race. Not only is it a heroic story, not only a patriotic story, it's a comedic story. This book contains everything a good story should. Twists and turns, ironies, comedies, um, a descent into tragedy that ends happily. It, it's a comedic story. It's fun. It'll be a fun study. Um, but most importantly, this is a gospel story. And now, if you read the book of Esther, you are not going to find the death, burial, and, Jesus, the beth, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in this story. But the reason it's a gospel story is because without the events of Esther, there is no gospel. Without Esther's hero, her, heroinism, I don't know if that's right, heroism, hero, I don't know, heroics. Um, without Esther's heroics, the Jewish nation goes extinct. And the blind of Jesus is ended, and Jesus never is born, and Jesus never dies for our sins. This story saves the gospel. This story saves the gospel. It's a gospel story. As much as this is a patriotic story for the nation of Israel, this is a patriotic story for us. Because this is about our Savior. Our life. This story is about the salvation of our Savior's bloodline. It's just about us. It doesn't give the gospel it preserves the gospel. It's just as much about our history as it is yours. Just as much. So that's kind of the story of Esther. But now what's the purpose? Why have a Hollywood story? Why have a book of the Bible that doesn't mention God? Right? The whole book's supposed to be about God. Why would we have a book that doesn't mention God? Um, there's actually a lot of debate in like the, canonist, the, the canon of both the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible of whether Esther should be included because of this. And because of, um, if you look at it, Mord- uh, Haman... I mean, Mordecai and Esther are not good Jews. They, they disobey Jewish law almost every chapter. The fact that she's even participating in this beauty pageant is against Jewish law. She marries a non-Jewish person against the law. Um, they participate in festivals that are against Jewish law. They're not good Jews. They don't really mention God. Why is this in, why is this in the book? Um, well, I think the reason we should study it is because it's very similar to how our life shapes, very similar to how God acts with us, which we talked about. There's no signs and wonders. All they have in this book is the Holy Scriptures and the purpose that God's given them. So this is the purpose of Esther, and then this is the purpose of this series, and this is the purpose of our sermon. Although God may seem absent or hidden, does not mean that he is. And throughout this story, you're not going to see a lot of mention of God, but God is very, very active in their lives. He's very active. Above, beyond active. Some of us in this room are going through things, are going through life seasons where it seems that God is hidden or absent from us. We've been through it. We've either been through it or we're going through where it seems like God is not near us, God is away from us, there's no way God could be in this, there's no way God could use this. But I promise you that we serve an active God who is involved in your life. Always. Some of you guys are going through a, or you've been through a divorce that there's no way God could be in it. He is. Some of you guys are dealing with death, tragedy. I feel like we've had, a, we've had a, a lot of death in our community lately. How could God be in that? I may not know how he could, but I know that he is. Some of you guys are dealing with debt, instability, financial instability. I don't know what God's going to do through that, but I know he will. You know, disagreements, degrading health. We had a visit this week with some of our members who are degrading health. How could God be in that? How could God take that? I don't have the answers for how, but I know that he is. God is in it. God is in your life. 
And it's very easy when you're in the pages not to see that God is in it. But when you look back on the story of Esther, and when you look back on your life, it is hard to ignore the presence of God for believers. It's hard to ignore the Romans 8. Uh, let's turn to Romans 8 real quick. And then I got one, one story and we're done. Um, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to him that love God who are called according to him as purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Skip to verse number 37. It says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Things work together for good because he holds us in his hand. And you need to know that. You need to be confident in that. That needs to excite you. That needs to warm you. That should stir up your heart that you are in the hand of God, and that he is in control, and he is active. He is not an observer. He's not watching. He is an active participant in your life and in your kids' lives and in everyone around you's life for those that know him. And not only is he participating, he's participating for your good because he loves you. I don't have a ton of life experience, but when I look back on my life, I can't help but see how active God is. When I was 10 years old, um, my dad pastored in Texas. My dad's pastor, been my pastor my entire life. Uh, he pastored in Texas for 12 years. I was born in Texas. I'm from Texas. Um, Texas. Um, when I moved, we moved from Texas to Florida when I was 10 because my dad took another church. Um, and that, in that moment in my life, for a long time, was like one of the darkest moments of my life as a 10-year-old because just moving the way we moved. I remember this is cruel and unusual. You, you, I hope you guys comment mean things on my parents' Facebook for the story I'm about to tell you. Um, when I was 10, we were, my parent, my mom worked for the airline, so we got really cheap flights. We were going to Hawaii for like free. It was awesome. And uh, we were on the way to the airport. We had about an hour and a half ride to the Houston airport. And uh, on the way there, my parents are like, so look, we're going to Hawaii, but we're going to do a three-day detour in Florida because you're your dad's preaching at this church. I was like, okay, sick. I love Florida. I've never been. Went to Florida. We're sitting in church Sunday morning. I'm 10. I'm pretty, I'm a pretty with it 10-year-old though, okay? This is not just a normal, I'm, I'm not, I'm a, I was a normal 10-year-old, but I was, I was well aware of things. Not today. Sat down and they handed out bulletins. Y'all remember bulletins? I miss bulletins. I miss a good announcement. Um, they handed out bulletins. I looked down at the bulletin and it said, candidating for pastor, Brent Stansel. I said, Really? Nobody had told me. Nobody told me. Found out in the bulletin. I was like, I was looking at my mom, and she was like, we'll talk about it later. I said, I mean, I'm 10. Like, you can tell me. I'm, I'm, I'm with it enough to tell me. Didn't tell me. My dad candidates. Gets like 99% of the vote. Stinking too much. Um, we get the vote. We, six weeks later, we're living in Florida. As a 10-year-old, that was horrific. Now, I know we know that life goes on, you're okay. I remember when my dad announced to our church in Texas, it was like literally death had occurred, just wailing and gnashing of teeth. These, my dad had built this church, there was 25 people when he got there, when he left it was near 400 and it was all new converts. It wasn't like, it wasn't like a growing of, no, it was like people that 
my parents had one to the Lord discipled over this 15-year period. And when he left, it was like this terrible, terrible thing. And I remember thinking as a 10-year-old, there's no way that God has anything to do with this. Because it just seems so godless to go through that. Now, that's not, I mean, that, that was a literal move. Y'all, that was a move. Um, but we went to Florida, moved to Florida. Um, as soon as we got to Florida, my dad entered this battle um, in our church. There was this legal issue with, some, with a family in our church that was going against each other. Major ministry, uh, this major Christian ministry kind of dealing with each other. And for the next three or four years, I had to witness my dad deal with this horrible, horrible inner church squabble fight that was in legal involvement, all this stuff. I remember my dad started losing all of his hair only in the back. He was, he was so stressed out that he was balding in circles. He had all these bald circles in the back of his head. And I don't know, if some of you guys have been pastor's kids, some of you guys have experienced this. There is nothing like being a pastor's kid when it comes to dealing with stress. I'm telling you, it's love your pastor's kids. Um, love your pastor's kids. Because you're a 13, 14-year-old having to watch your parents go through this. And I remember thinking, this is Christians. This is an inner Christian conflict. How could God have anything to do with this? How could God be in control of this? How could this be in the palm of God's hand? I remember my best friend moved away during this time because of this. She moved across the country. My best friend. How could God have anything to do with this? Eventually, God showed himself to be God. And we were still in Florida. And we kind of thought, okay, maybe God moved us to Florida just to deal with this. Maybe we're supposed to go somewhere else now. And it was about a year after all that conflict ended, a lady um, walked up to my dad after church on a Sunday morning with a three-year-old little boy and said, God told me, uh, I don't know if this is true, but God told me that you are supposed to adopt this kid. Three years old, his name was Alik. Silly name, Alik. Um, Alik. So my parents who are, who listen to God, even when it's not easy, even when it seems like very hard. They'd already had four kids. Grant was um, 10. They'd kind of done with that little kid stage of life. Jumped back in and adopted my now little brother, who's 13 now, Hudson. Hudson. If you know Hudson, he's a trip. He's, he's special needs, but he is hilarious, fun, happy, awesome, awesome kid. And uh, it was so fun to me. He's got a, he had a feeding tube. I got to learn how to give medicine. I was given boluses. I was given food. I was given all this stuff. I was like a little walk-in. I was like a little home nurse as a 14, 15-year-old kid learning how to do all this. Uh, but it was fun. It was fun. And then my parents kind of st- kept going fostering. Um, and then they got Maya. And Maya was six months old when we got Maya. And Maya had just had her first heart transplant. It's her second heart. She was six months old. Her mom had... Uh, drugs, addiction, bad care, needed a heart, got a heart. We got her six months old. In years, we kind of like to watch her grow up. And it was so obvious to see God in Maya at that time because her mom eventually get, ended up getting clean, getting saved. And uh, then we have, now we have this beautiful little sister who we get to hold this trophy of grace and we got to teach our church adoption and now all these different families in our church have adopted kids back home because of my parents example and it's just it was so easy to see God in that you know it's there's sometimes where it's just easy to see God so there's been moments these past 14 15 weeks it's been easy to see God but there's been other moments where it wasn't as easy and about two years ago um Maya was really, she just kept getting sick, kept getting sick, went to the hospital. She had COVID, she had pneumonia, and then she went into kidney failure because of another infection. And her kidney started pulling on her heart, and then she went into heart failure on her second heart as a seven-year-old little girl. Went to heart failure. 
And uh, it was kind of a thing where it's like, okay, we probably need to put her on the heart transplant list, but she's nowhere near healthy enough to, to operate. And it kind of kept going worse. And like I said, I like to turn my eyes to bad things. So I was living here at the time, since two years ago, kind of turned my eyes to it as much as I could. But the reality is, this is my little sister, this is my family. And I had to watch my parents go through this once again. And I thought, man, God, she's already been through this. You've already worked in her lives. How could this be of God? This doesn't make any sense. How could God be in this? There was three or four days in in the last two springs ago where the doctor said she's going to die. Like it was over. It wasn't like a, no, it was, this is over. Her heart's too weak. Once again, God pulls her through. And I don't know how God's going to use Maya's life. I don't know how God's going to use my life. I don't know how God's going to use your life. I don't know how the ways that God's going to use the situation that our church is in. Now, we don't mention it much on Sunday morning. We're on a transition of pastorate. I don't know how God's going to use all this, but I do know that he's in control, and I've got so much confidence in that. I'll be honest. I don't have confidence in myself. Can I be honest? I don't have confidence in the leadership team. I don't have confidence in Coleman. I don't have confidence in Matt, but I have got a confidence on wavering in the God who controls all of them. And I put my faith in there. You read the story of Esther, it seems as if God is absent, but God is more involved in the story of Esther because it's about God's people. And when God's people are involved, God's involved. In every area of your life, when you're involved in something, when you're going through something, when you're going through a struggle, when you're going through a high, a low, it doesn't matter. God is present and involved. And you need to have confidence in that. That should brighten your day. That should put a smile on your face. Sometimes your spirit of worry, your spirit of fear overcomes your confidence in the Lord. But let today not be that day. Because you have a God who holds you in his hand. Who loves you endlessly. My dad always says, cheer up Christian, you're going to die. There's going to be a day where we get to spend with Jesus. Hopefully today is not that day. Maybe it is, I don't know. Either way, he's got us. The story of Esther is a story of God holding his people, and that's the same story for us. God holding his people. Let's go ahead and stand. Bow your head and close your eyes. Some of us need to allow the...